T minus 10, 9, 8, 7. And we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. Blast off into the potosphere with DGP nominal. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. It's the second one of the year and uh, unfortunately we didn't actually get time to do the sci-fi one at the end of January, so... Apologies for that, we will make up for it in February. There will be a lot of Star Wars, I can guess. There always is. Before I continue, there's one person missing. I wonder who that can be. Final precious. Don't ask. I just had to come up with something different. Kermit's got a sore throat, I think. <laughs> That's right, I did do him last time. I forgot, I couldn't remember. So how you doing? Well, you know, now that the snowstorm has passed... Yeah. I saw your photos yeah. of your barbecue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we kind of got pummeled. Just a little bit. The whole thing going into it was that DC was going to get hit the hardest, and then it decided to shift a little bit north. And so we ended up with the highest amount of every place that got hit. We got a total of 34 inches. Wow. Yeah. Just a little bit of snow. But, you know, whatever. It, it was the light, fluffy kind, so my snowblower handled it. Not a problem. You know, and uh, yeah, the, the next day I went out and I dug out my grill because priorities. And and, th- and thanks very much because I was doing things and I didn't get time to eat. And I saw your photos and I was like, <laughs> now I'm hungry. <laughs> it's your fault for not eating. <laughs> Don't blame me for that. <laughs> Oh, because normally if if there's bad weather on, on the East Coast, we get the tail end of it. Yeah. And uh said, oh, we're going to get the tail end of the storms that were in America. And I was like, oh, great. And then it said, by the time it gets halfway across the Atlantic, it's going to get warmer. So we got rain. <laughs> <laughs> Again. Um <laughs> Yeah, that is just snow, 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 snow all over the place. Yeah, there were some awesome videos out there of uh, different things that people were doing. I mean, I've I've never seen New York like that before, where it's just (laughs) completely no traffic at all. They had a state of emergency there where basically if you were on the road during a certain time, you would have been arrested. Wow. And people were saying, wow, that's a violation of civil rights, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, really, but if you get into an accident then that means that the police and possibly ambulances are going to have to be busy with your selfish rear end when you should have been staying home and let them clear the roads and deal with people who actually would have problems. That makes sense, yeah. You know, people who maybe were shoveling and started to suffer a heart attack. Okay, need to get the ambulance to them instead of worrying about whether you got injured because you were on the road when you shouldn't have been. I mean, I saw these news reports of these um, doctors trying to get into to hospitals to try and cover for the people that have already done like two days as it was because, you know, they couldn't get through and they were doing their best just to try and get in there. And I thought that these people are dedicated. Yeah. They really are. I mean, it's the same here. I mean, as I said, half the country is still flooded. What I don't understand is it's flooded. It's getting worse every year with the floods. The government have cut the flood defence's budget. Oh, that makes sense. And they're building new houses on floodplains. 
Wow. I don't get it. I really don't. It's like, I'm sorry, after seeing what happened with Katrina, I'll be damned before I build a house in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. And the other bad thing about it is the insurance company is not paying out because it's an act of God. I hate that. There is no act of God. I'm paying you to replace my house if something happens, as long as it's not my fault. That's just, no. <laughs> that act of God clause has to go. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> we have problems with that over here, too. There was a film about that. I don't know if you saw it. It was called The Man Who Sued God. Um, I've seen the title of it. I never checked to see what that was about. It's a Billy Connolly film, actually. <laughs> Basically, it's about a guy who had a, a yacht or a boat, a sailing boat, some description, and it got struck by lightning and sank. And he tried to claim on the insurance, and they said, no, it was an act of God. So he decided, I'm going to sue the church. <laughs> huh. Nice. Right. As you know, at the beginning of the month, always spicy. So when we come back, that's what we're going to be talking about. Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Future round trips to Mars could take 500 days or longer. This year, NASA launched the first one-year mission to the International Space Station to help prepare for those future journeys. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and space launch system rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. Well, I'm sure that you saw the footage that uh, the Falcon 9 rocket ship, you know, they, they tried to land it again, and they did. He landed. Sort of. Yeah, they lost the, <laughs> the feed, though, didn't they? Again. Yeah, coincidentally. <laughs> it's amazing how that works. They, they've probably got it delayed. Uh, the feed you see is probably delayed, so thinking, oh, something's going wrong here, so cut the feed. <laughs> Yeah, that wouldn't surprise. But, you know, you knew they were going to release the footage later anyway. Mm -hmm. And they did. And it made a landing. But then it kind of didn't. Yeah, the, the third leg didn't um, stay put, did it? It, uh, yeah. it buckled. Yeah, um, I mean, because it, it stayed there nicely for a couple of seconds. Oh, yeah. You think, yes, that's fantastic. What's happening? It's toppling over. I'm, I'm sure. You know when it, they said, oh, uh, it, it sensationally failed and exploded. I'm sure that is a controlled explosion. It, it, think? I think it's controlled, yeah. The way it fell over, it didn't fall that hard, so it shouldn't have really gone up like it did. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking there's controlled explosions there, just in hmm. case. But it's not Quite as though there's what? anybody on it, so... No, no, it's, but, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. 
I don't know. But the the other thing we were talking about last time when we said, well, why don't they do all their landings on land rather than on something that's floating? Well, I read somewhere it's it's depending on what mission um, it's going with because they might not have enough fuel to get back to land. Oh, that makes sense. So that's why they're trying to get it to land on a floating surface. I mean, this isn't really a huge rocket, so it's not going to have a lot of place for fuel reserves. Mm-hmm. So, so well, that makes sense. I was like, ah, okay. But I did see, I don't know if you've seen it, there's... Um, this little animated thing that um, this is what they need to do to stop it from toppling over and it's kind of like these posts that uh, are hydraulically lift up with kind of a, a, a grid like rope or something in there that kind of zooms in onto the, the rocket to keep it stable <laughs> stop it from falling over. Um, yeah, sort of like those uh, tow lines or whatever that, that uh, aircraft carriers have. Yeah, yeah, kind of. But it, it does it in a kind of like a crisscross pattern so that it actually homes in on the centre of the rocket and right. it can't topple. That's a feasible thing they could do. Oh, I, see, I think I see what you mean. Like it, it shoots upward to catch it. Well, no, it's kind of imagined the ship is like a, a boxing ring, okay? Mm-hmm. So the ring, it's got the ropes around it. Sure. The ropes kind of come inwards. Um, so if it does try and topple... It can only go as far as the ropes are. Well, I mean, maybe theoretically it would work. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know. I think for that to really be effective, it would have to go up beyond the halfway point of the height of the rocket. Because otherwise, center of gravity could get it, and it could very well. T- I don't know. They, maybe they, not. They, this, these hydraulics kind of did go up as probably about as far as halfway up. Okay. So it's not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> But um, I don't know who actually came up with that concept. I, I don't know if it was a, an engineer or, or, or whatever, but um, I looked at it and thought, technically, that should work, but you know how these things go. Yeah. It, well, you know how it goes when you're trying to um, put something together, and he goes, well, according to the design, this should be working right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, and just you know, from software programming, I know all about that. Look, the code looks good. What's going on? <laughs> oh, well, they almost made it. Well, technically, they, they did make it, but... I mean, it, it landed. They said that it was something like 1.3 meters away from the center of the target. Oh, yeah, I mean, from the video, you couldn't even really tell. It looked like it was spot on. Because that was something we mentioned uh, on the on the last show, because it was intimate that it was actually going to happen. And the other thing that was happening at the time was the spacewalk, which they had a little bit of an issue with. They should have been uh, out there for, was it six and a half hours, I think, they were scheduled right. to, to be out there. They actually fixed the SSU, which was the main thing that they wanted to do, which was the mm-hmm. the failed part of the solar array they wanted to, to fix. And they got that done. They got some other minor jobs done. Uh, there was still some cabling that needed to be done, but it wasn't anything majorly important. I believe the problem that they had, which was uh, Tim Copra's helmet, was filling with um, water. And I believe it's the same suit that they had the problems with last time. Yike. So they I didn't know that it was the same suit, but mm, yeah, so I was watching that feed. That was actually pretty cool. But they were even saying afterward that their main goal was what they had already finished the very first thing that they did. Yeah. And the rest was just gravy. If they could get it done, great. 
But I mean, so they really accomplished their mission. Yeah. So to uh, say that it, it ended two hours early doesn't that's fine. That was just the extra stuff that they were trying to do. But that was neat to watch. Yeah, it was. And we had uh, live coverage over here, obviously. Yeah, and British press have been really behind him. <laughs> they really have. Once again, we had another stargazing live program going on about it. I mean, we had one for the launch, one for the docking, and one for the spacewalk. The country has really got behind him. And actually, one thing before I forget, and I must actually say this, we had uh, a couple of pictures come through from one of our Twitter followers. Was uh, and, and she goes under the hashtag uh, Nikki Salsa. Uh, she put up a couple of pictures of her daughter Mia, and between them, they made a little spacesuit for her to commemorate Tim's uh, spacewalk. And it's really, really good. The, the arms are made out of kind of um, tumble dryer hoses. It, it really looks good. So I'm going to put the, put those up on the uh, on the show notes because I promised them that I would. Nice. <laughs> I do have to ask this. Tim Peake is not the first British astronaut. So what, he is. He is the first British astronaut as part of the European Space Agency to go into space. Hmm. And most definitely the first Brit to do a spacewalk. Well, yeah, that one I know about. <laughs> Helen Sharman uh-huh. technically is a cosmonaut because it was funded by the Russian Space Agency. Interesting. It wasn't funded by the Br- British government at all. It was funded by the Russian government. So te- but she was still the first Briton in space. She she is the first Briton in space. There have been a lot of female voices being raised saying, what's the big deal? We, we did it 20-odd years ago. But she wasn't funded by the British government, which is rather weird. The, the actual story is very complicated very complicated politically right and uh, there was a documentary just before Christmas called When Britain Had the Right Stuff Um, because we were due to go into space in the 80s as part of the and I can't remember the name of the program now it was some kind of Skynet Skynet satellite program they were going to be put into the loading bay of the space shuttle and there was going to be two RAF pilots that were going to be trained to be astronauts that were going to go up and make sure that these satellites went off and, and things like that and then the unfortunate day in 1986 happened yeah hard to believe that was 30 years ago yeah and that's yeah. what tomorrow tomorrow yeah there's a actual ceremony tomorrow there's two actually there's one at the cemetery and there's one at Kennedy Space Center it's going to be televised actually at um, I'm trying to think what time it's going to be televised. I know it's going to be 3 p.m. UK so it's going to be five hours later isn't it for Eastern so I will probably watch and pay my respects yeah, that one hurt. Yeah, both of them did, actually. They both did. Yeah, when I woke up and found out Columbia went down, I was like, what? Yeah. Um, and obviously, you can't forget the the guys from Apollo 1 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been other um, Soviet ones that you, you can't also forget oh, yeah. as well. So it's, Space is not safe. Space is hard. It, it is, yeah, space is hard. It, it is not a safe place to go to. But that, that's why all, you know, all the more kudos to those people who managed to do it. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> 
as long as we're talking about the sad anniversary with Challenger, let's talk about a happy anniversary. I hate segues, but that one just worked. The uh, Opportunity Mars Rover is now 12 years old. As of January 24th, it's been rolling along for 12 years, which is remarkable when you figure that its original mission was only supposed to be for 90 days. Yeah, it's really surprising how (laughs) these things just keep going. That's just amazing to think. In fact, they said that it's in better shape now than it has been in, in several years because they said that normally when it's wintertime on, on the Martian surface, they'll kind of shut it down and they'll stop doing things because they're trying to conserve power. Well, they said that now they've got it to the point where they've found spots on Mars that get concentrations of sunlight and they've been able to get it in such a way that the Martian winds and so forth have been able to clean off the solar panels. They said the solar panels now are cleaner than they've been in years. So they're actually able to use the thing now during the Martian winter when they weren't able to do it before. So they found out ways to keep energy reserves low as well as, you know, keep it charged, keep it going instead of just shutting it down for four months. That's really cool. And the the, the fact that um, they've been given funding for another year, which we mentioned uh, yep. last time, which is brilliant because it, it just shows you how reliable this thing is. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the same with a lot of them. I mean, you look at Voyager. <laughs> yeah. That just went on and on. Yeah, that's... <laughs> that one's going out. Yep. So, uh, yeah, Opportunity is now 12 years old. Uh, Curiosity is several years younger than that. But, yep. again, you know, that's that's still chugging along. Mm-hmm. So that landed in, what, 2012? Yep, yep. So that one's still chugging along. But right now, Opportunity has traveled over 26 miles. You figure that that's more than any other robot besides those on Earth. And it's, it's just going along, doing its thing, and it's in better shape now than it's been in a couple of years. I mean, you do get some people... I always remember a phrase that um, uh, Gene Cernan said once that, um, yeah, okay, these space probes and rovers and that are fine, but it's not quite the same as having humans up there and you see the difference between humans and and robots is they don't get ticker tape parades <laughs> <laughs> that's true uh, well we don't actually look to try to bring the rovers back either <laughs> did you ever see the there's a, a website out there called xkcd and the guy is just like he just draws stick figures but the guy he he's into science and and all that stuff he puts some articles out there that are just pretty evident that he's more of an engineer than, than most of us. But he did one about one of the rovers, and it was just one of those that tugs at the heartstrings, because it's just, it's the rover. Of course, you can personify it, because it's got stereo eyes, so, and a long neck, so you, you can see the thing being human, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way. And the poor thing's going along, it's like, okay, I've done all this work, when do I get to come home, guys? And each frame as it goes on, and he's talking about all the things that he's done, and it's like, well, have I done something wrong? They're not coming back for me at all. And then the last frame is just like a, a Panavision view, with the Martian surface and this little thing on its own, just saying, hello, guys, can I come home now? And it's just, oh, it hurts to look at. <laughs> It just hurts. What do you make of this uh, planet that I think they may have discovered? Well, I mean, they know more than I do. But actually, I was, I was reading up a lot on that one. And it's kind of funny that the guys who said, yeah, I mean, this, they're not the first ones to talk about this, but they're the, just the latest ones. And they've got more proof or most hypothetical proof. I don't know how do you want to look at that because nothing's proven, obviously. Mm-hmm. But they actually set out to disprove the initial statements that there's a ninth planet. And then in their own investigation, they found so much evidence pointing to it that they're like, oh, yeah, looks like they were right. And so now they, they've come up with all, their own 
various simulations and so forth. And so they're now saying, yeah, there's a ninth planet out there somewhere, and it's a big one. So I just th- I just think it's funny that they went out to disprove it, then said, oh, there's actually a lot of evidence here. And now they've provided their evidence, and other scientists are saying, yeah, that's the most conclusive evidence we have yet. <laughs> So, you know, when someone who's looking to debunk it suddenly saying, oh, it's actually most likely true, there might be something there. See, when I heard about it, somebody actually mentioned it to me and they said, oh, they found a ninth planet. I said, yeah, I know. It's called Pluto. Yeah, Pluto. Yeah. Yeah. Um. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. In fact, I've got the quote here for this one. Yeah. the, the The one guy says that it's not even a question. It's definitely a planet because the thing has to clear its neighborhood, which Pluto apparently can't do. Mm-hmm. And he said that uh, you know it needs to have the gravitational prowess to change the orbits of other objects. So Planet Nine is is forcing any objects that cross into its orbit to push into these misaligned positions. It fits that concept perfectly. Not to mention the fact that it's five thousand times the mass of Pluto. Yeah, it's um, ten times the mass of Earth. But I mean, from what I, from the, the one article that I read said that they they actually know where it is they know the path of the orbit that it takes mm-hmm. yeah. they just need to find it and right now it's ref- it's so far away it's reflecting so little light from the sun you might still be able to see it but you'd need really really good telescopes to do that it was this same kind of method that they were using to find this ninth planet that also led to the discovery of neptune because they, they saw the same thing uh, when they were observing uranus they're like, you know, that's kind of weird. There must be some other body affecting it. And sure enough, hey, look, there's another planet out there. The, the doctor that's in, ch- in charge of the, the project, his name is Doc Brown. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, he specializes <laughs> in finding high... Marty, we found a ninth planet! <laughs> far-flung objects. And it was his discovery of the 2,236-kilometer-wide Eris in the, in the Kuiper Belt in 2005 that led to the demotion of Pluto. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. From the full planet status a year later. Dr. Brown's Twitter handle is Pluto Killer. Yeah, he's kind of proud of that one. Oh, I might have to have words with him. <laughs> <laughs> you and a bunch of... Well, you know, let's face it. I think most people were tainted because of... We got we got those fantastic images from New Horizons. And it's like, look, it's a planet. Look at that. Look at that. Well, you know, it still doesn't really fit their criteria. As emotional as it might be. Yeah, but he calls himself Pluto. Pluto killer. <laughs> Unbelievable. Problem is how far that orbit is supposed to go out, because it's supposed to be a really bad elliptical orbit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's 20, 20 times farther than Neptune. Yeah. That's a big path to try to cover. I'm not saying they won't find it, but, ooh, good luck with it. And it doesn't actually move in the normal direction that um, some of the other planets do. It's in a more yeah. oval Yeah, it looks more like pattern. a comet's orbit. Yeah, which is really weird. But um, who knows what's going on in that Kuiper belt, to be honest with you. There's a lot of yeah. weird stuff in there, I reckon. <laughs> I reckon? You need to say that with a Texas accent. <laughs> <laughs> Even over here in the States too long there, Sonny. <laughs> Sorry, I just don't... I'm, I'm not used to a Brit saying, I reckon. <laughs> that, that, that just threw me for a little bit of a loop. Well, you've, you've noticed that with uh, myself and uh, Andrew from my, my co-host from my, my other podcast, that uh, the, uh, the Americanisms creep in with Andrew quite a lot. <laughs> well, you, you noticed that when we started going on about pleading the fifth, but I mean, it was... But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, another residual from the my beloved space shuttle program. You know, I'm still ticked off about that. I know it was expensive to run. 
But, you know, damn it, you don't just cancel a project when you've got nothing else in plan for it. But anyway, so the last big thing associated with the Space Shuttle's program is not the Space Shuttle, but it was that other piece that was kind of connected to it. Well, literally... Literally. Oh, yeah. That big jumbo 747. Yeah. That's now on display down in Houston with the 747 shuttle exhibit. Uh, so it's at Independent Plaza, and it, it's just a big honking 747. It's the one that was used to carry the shuttle around uh, whenever it needed to be transported between California and Florida. They've topped it off with a model of a space shuttle. And this one is called the Independence. It's a replica orbiter. It's supposed to be identical to any of the others. Mm-hmm. It is, um, actually. Yeah. I've actually been so, in it. <laughs> yeah. That's now available. Uh, they just had a ceremony for it. Yeah, it's uh, it literally just opened. The Independence uh, used to be called the Explorer huh. back in the day uh, when it was at Kennedy. Uh, when it was stationed there and it is a pretty accurate full-size replica and I've actually been in the payload uh, place when they've actually got a satellite in in the back (laughs) (laughs) which is still there because I saw some pictures of it uh, when I was looking up this story why did they change the name of it I quite kind of like the space shuttle explorer (laughs) yeah you know my whole thing with this you've got the genuine 747 but then you've got a of shuttle replica. Yeah. That bothers me. Now, two of them I understand. The uh, Atlantis is over in Kennedy Space Center. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Discovery is at the Air and Space Museum in Virginia. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. But the Enterprise, well, I mean, the Enterprise wasn't really a shuttle anyway. Well, it as didn't. A, as it a didn't, test model. Yeah. It didn't go to space, but it, yeah. it actually flew. It did fly. I mean, but that's in New York City. And Endeavor is in a science museum in California. California. Yeah. Maybe this is just my emotions talking, but the, if, if you've got the genuine 747, you should have one of the genuine shuttles attached to it. Mm-hmm. At Johnson, they should have something there. But I, I can understand it to a point why they've got it in California, because a lot of that spacecraft was built... Ah, oh, what area of California? Palmdale. Yeah, I don't know. I, it just... You can't tell me that they haven't been planning this since... You know, that this was suddenly an idea after those other shuttles got distributed. It's like, oh, you know what? Maybe we should have. They must have been planning this from the start. And it just, I don't know. It's an emotion thing. It doesn't have any logic behind it. But it just seems to me that if you've got the genuine 747, you should have a genuine shuttle there, too. I really can't see the connection why Enterprise was actually in New York. If anything, it should be at Johnson. I mean, don't get me wrong. Intrepid is a a fantastic museum. But, yeah, it really should be at Johnson if they wanted to... that is technically a shuttle. It could yeah. fly. It, it, it could be launched into space. Yeah, and given that argument, I can definitely see where California has a better claim to have one than mm-hmm. New York City. Yeah, but that's just like why New York City? Yeah, I just. And then they nearly broke it. What? What? what, what? I don't know this. <laughs> Didn't you not about? hear about that when they also were, forgot about it when they moved it into uh, uh, down the Hudson River? They were going under, I think, under the bridge, and they clipped the wing. Oh, for crying out loud, I don't remember that. It was on one of the barges that was taking it under the bridge, and they clipped it. (sighs) Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the footage that they were showing you of uh, when these 
craft were being moved into place. The one in California was amazing where they had to take down trees and um, mm-hmm. street signs and, and things and because the, oh, wing, yeah. the wings were too wide. I, can I just see photos of that. It's like they're bringing a space shuttle down a residential area? What? <laughs> I, I could just imagine you know, waking up that morning, uh, opening your curtains and did I just see a space <laughs> shuttle? Are you, if I knew that was coming down my street, man, I would have been awake and ready hours beforehand. <laughs> there was another one where um, it was out at sea uh, on one of the barges where it was going across and it was a brilliant picture of somebody sunbathing and over the top of their belly you could just see this space shuttle nice really cool <laughs> shot they planned that one <laughs> I've got some some of the photos from the different one. I mean, the one going over Washington was was amazing. Going over Capitol Hill and the, oh, yeah. uh, the Washington Memorial and things. It looked so good. Well, even New York City flying over the Statue of Liberty and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome, and, and you know, loved it, but. One of the shuttles doesn't really belong in New York City. And the, the other one was flying over the Golden Gate Bridge, which was mm-hmm. another good one. Yeah. Um, there were some fantastic shots. And the, the other good ones were where they met for the first time, uh, where you had uh, like a couple of these um, shuttles had never seen each other, if you if you look at it that way. And they were like nose to nose. Right. One ready to to be taken wherever the other one ready to have its uh, engines taken out and whatnot which is sad I always thought they were going to keep one um, flight ready just in case yeah well that's but they never that did ha- that was uh, that, that was Endeavour wasn't it uh, no that would have Rich- been Atlantis or, was that Atlantis okay, yeah it was one of the two mm. not my favourite of the fleet always Columbia been. was mine Discovery's been mine because she she was she was the workhorse she was the diva she was a diva. Yeah. If she wasn't ready to fly, she wasn't ready to fly. Yeah, but Columbia was the first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I remember watching that launch live. And, and Columbia with the white fuel tank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got a story here that Russia intends to spend three and a half times less than NASA on a new generation manned spacecraft designed to replace the Soyuz family. The craft will rival the Dragon 2 being developed by SpaceX. According to the new budget being requested by the new Roscosmos, <laughs> not the Roscosmos Federation, the Roscosmos Corporation. Uh, for a communist country, they know capitalism very well. <laughs> Let, let's face it, there is maybe Cuba. Otherwise, there is no communist nation anymore. They've all gone to capitalism one way or another. Yeah, even China. Yeah. But the, the, the name of this spacecraft is Federation. Sorry, Gene Roddenberry already has a claim on that. One. <laughs> uh, it's a reusable piloted spacecraft that will cost 58 billion rubles. <laughs> Which is 734 million US dollars uh, over the next six years. The, the sum requested is three and a half times less than what NASA is spending to develop its uh, uh, SpaceX Dragon 2 delivery vehicle, which has allocated $2.6 billion in uh, 2014. Yeah, well, I've got a story on that one later. In fact, the new research and development budget runs at eight billion rubles or 101 million dollars less than it was planned last year federation or as it was formerly known as the prospective piloted transportation system or the ppts even the russians are at it um (laughs) 
<laughs> is expected to be completed in 2021. Dragon, in theory, to Dr- Dragon 2 will be up and running and been going a long time by 2021. Mm-hmm. Its first launches to the International Space Station in both manned and unmanned modes are scheduled for 2023. Now, aren't the Russians supposed to be pulling out in 2024? (laughs) They're supposed to be. I don't really know that I see that happening. I I think that that might have been said in the spur of the moment because of other political issues going on that will not be discussed here. But... uh, I don't know. I don't really see them doing that. But this this new Federation craft there uh, is the one that they're intending to go to the moon with. Mm. Uh, basically, set, I've, I've got a video that I'll put in the show notes, and what it actually shows is there's a, a rocket uh, stage that goes up to a certain point, and then the Federation docks with it, and then it goes on further from there. Um, so that's what they're intending to do. Is is go to uh, the moon well we're talking about the space shuttle and we know how near and dear that is to our hearts mm-hmm. and we always kind of mocked the the little mini shuttle the the dream chaser oh the disney designed one the yeah di- <laughs> oh come on but it's still cute <laughs> <laughs> it's still a cute little spaceship it might actually have a chance now yeah because we were discussing this before mm-hmm. uh, where it was going to fit in because nobody seemed to want it. Yep. Uh, but things seem to have done a U-turn. Yeah, NASA has actually awarded them with a new contract. It's from the Sierra Nevada Corporation, and it's called the Dream Chaser, and it does. It looks like a little teeny tiny shuttle, except the wings are kind of tipped upward. Mm-hmm. And it's adorable. I want one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's only about 30 feet long. Its wingspan is only 23 feet. So, I mean, that's that makes it smaller than a, a Learjet. So, it, it's really a tiny thing. But they've been awarded a contract with NASA to ferry uncrewed cargo to and from the International Space Station. The, this, apparently, the, the real reason behind this and why this beat out some of the others that we figured would be a shoe-in for it is the fact that it can land means that scientists can get their hands on their experiments within you know as little as six hours after the thing lands Mm -hmm. instead of having to go to the ocean and fish it out and haul it back could be days whereas now could they could land it and in just a few hours scientists could have their experiment results it's it's pretty good i mean originally it was aimed at uh, a crude vehicle uh, and not cargo Mm. Um, they obviously thought that that's not going to work so they've gone the other way and welcome on board basically i mean it is a tiny thing really so the more people you have on board means the more provisions you're also going to have to have which Mm -hmm. means the less room for equipment so i kind of get it i think we kind of need to fly that thing yeah it's supposed to be a lot more um, aerodynamic than the original shuttles were Mm -hmm. Uh, as we know uh, through listening to some of the pilots talking about flying the the space shuttle it was like flying a brick Um, (laughs) uh, and it takes a lot of skill to Mm -hmm. fly it's 
just amazing that the, the, the two companies that got have got knocked out of the bidding are two of the real biggies. Yep. I mean, we're talking Boeing and, and Lockheed Martin. I've been watching the development of the uh, the Dream Chaser for a few years, and I kind of got attached to it too. Maybe it's because it's a shuttle. I don't know. Yeah, it is. It's a mini shuttle. Let's face it. But yeah, I, I'm really glad that they've been given this chance, and it, it's not just with NASA. Uh, that are taking them on it also looks like that Sierra Nevada is also going to be taken on by the European Space Agency they've got a a cooperation agreement that is going to be signed in the next two weeks once the agreement is signed ESA will begin working on building the the first flight module of the uh, international berthing and docking mechanism which uh, Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser needs to attach itself to the space station ESA said it will be spending 30 33 million euros or 36 million uh, US dollars to complete the design of the uh, the Berthium system and build a flight model for um, Dream Chaser's first cargo run. I mean, the only thing that bothers me, right now they've got one flight to their record back in 2013. Mm-hmm. They've only got three years, because the contract is supposed to start in 2019, so they've only got three years to get this thing up there and tested and ready to go before it can actually start sending stuff up to the space station. That's not a lot of time. Didn't it used to be something to do with NASA originally in the first place? The design was a NASA design or um, a a military design, I think. Well, uh, what does the Air Force have? Well, no, the Air Force is more like a looks more like a drone mm. kind of thing. It looks more like a military drone. But I'm, I'm sure there was some... Uh, it, it wasn't originally Sierra Nevada's own design. I think it was either NASA or a military design that they've acquired. Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, And again, they're also boasting that this thing could spend up to 210 days in space, but they haven't been able to test that either. Not as yet. So... I don't know. I mean, I'm hopeful for it. I'd love to see this thing going up, you know, uh, if anything, just to have those rekindled memories. But uh, I'm no rocket scientist. I'm sure they can do it. It's just one of those things to say, wow, three years to develop all that? Mm-hmm. Wow. I've just been reading on here that the um, the ESA di- Director General, uh, Jan Dietrich Vorna, uh, said that um, they intend to launch the Dream Chaser inside the fairing of a uh, Ariane 5 rocket, which will be interesting. Well, I figured just by the size of it, it would probably be something along those lines. It certainly doesn't need anything like what the shuttle had. Well, they were basically going to stick it on a, a on top of a booster, basically. <laughs> but it uh, looks like they don't need to do that anymore. 23 feet wide. To fit under the Ariane fairing, uh, the Dream Chaser would need to fold its wings. Even more than it already is? Yeah, apparently so. So, I mean, those things are already at, well, they look at a greater than 45-degree angle. Mm. I don't know, maybe, maybe 45 degrees. They probably just only need to fold in the tips, though. Yeah, I think so. That'll be something that can be rectified at the time of uh, departure from, from the fairing. That that wouldn't be an, an issue, I wouldn't have thought. But it's good that they've um, managed to get contracts with both NASA and ESA. It's really good. Yeah. So things are turning around for them. And, um, yeah, I wish them luck. I really do wish them luck. Absolutely. Obviously, uh, David Bowie's death was a bit of a shock. Yeah. Well, now the Starman is going to get his own stars. So the uh, Studio Brussels 
has arranged with the My Republic Observatory in Belgium. They're going to register several stars in the form of the famous Ziggy Stardust lightning bolt. According to uh, Philippe Mollet, I hope I'm pronouncing that properly, it's probably Mollet knowing me, he says, uh, it was not easy to determine the appropriate stars. Studio Brussels asked us to give Bowie a unique place in the galaxy. Referring to his various albums, we chose seven stars. These would be Sigma Libre, Spica, hope I'm pronouncing that one properly, Alpha Virginis, Zeta Centauri, SAA204132, <clears throat> E-I-E-I-O, and the Beta, <laughs> the Beta Sigma Octantis Trianguli Australis, which also happened to be in the vicinity of Mars. Mm. Those are going to go on record in the shape of David Bowie's lightning. Now, they're calling it a constellation. It's not. A lot of people are reporting that, oh, David Bowie's getting his own constellation. Well, it's not a constellation. It's actually what's called an asterism, which is simply a cluster of recognizable stars within a constellation. Sort of like the Big Dipper. Yeah. The Big Dipper is not a constellation. It is a group of stars inside Ursa Major, but we can look up and recognize it as the Big Dipper. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much what this is going to be. He also uh, has an asteroid named after him. It's a mile-wide asteroid between Mars and Jupiter that is officially named 342843 David Bowie. That sounds like he's, um, he's, uh, he's military number. <laughs> <laughs> and, and David Bowie is one word, too. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Go figure. So there wow. you go. Ziggy Stardust now has his place in the stars. And you say it's in the vicinity of Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, coincidence, huh? Yeah, life on Mars, yeah. I'm sure that was intentional. <laughs> I'm sure that was 100% intentional. NASA's Cassini probe has begun uh, reshaping its orbit around Saturn in preparation for the spacecraft's grand finale at the ringed planet next year. Cassini performed a 35-second engine burn on the 23rd of January to set up an orbit-changing 1st of February flyby of Saturn's huge moon, Titan, which is quite exciting because I I just love Titan. (laughs) There's uh, it's a lot of things going on on Titan. It's, it's quite an unpredictable uh, moon. It was the second of five such burns uh, Cassini will conduct. All of them will be followed by a close encounter with Titan. Because of the way that it's going to be doing the orbit, Titan does all the heavy lifting, said uh, Cassini project manager Earl Mays of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, otherwise known as the JPL in uh, Pasadena, California. Our job is to get the spacecraft to a precise altitude and latitude above Titan at a particular time. And with these large propulsive manoeuvres, that will keep us on target to do that. I'm just looking on here to see if it says anything else about the different orbits that it's going to manoeuvre. doesn't really say a lot here. Um, just says about the history of, of Cassini. A $3.2 billion mission, joint effort involving NASA and the European Space Agency and the Italian Space Agency. I'm assuming that the Italian Space Agency weren't part of the European Space Agency at the time. Uh, I didn't even know there was an Italian Space Agency, to be honest. <laughs> Romania's got a, a space agency. Really? Yeah, okay. they, they had a, a, a cosmonaut go up in space in 1981 which surprised me (laughs) hey more power to him yeah Uh, like like I was told when I went to the National Space Centre here in the UK it's easier to say who hasn't got a space agency (laughs) to say who has okay fair enough (laughs) so yeah that's going to be an interesting one Um, see what 
pictures they get back from from Titan because uh, my mum said I'm, I'm sure you're not of this planet and I always used to say that Titan was my home world <laughs> nice <laughs> so then you're probably very fond of the uh, manga called Attack on Titan yes how <laughs> did I know yes. how did I know <laughs> Did you hear about the the Christmas present that the guys on the space station had? Which was an awesome Christmas present to have. It was. um, and According to one of Tim Peake's recent Facebook posts, he said, I would never have believed you if you told me as a kid that one day I would watch Star Wars in space. <laughs> but we saw the new Star Wars film on Christmas Day on the International Space Station. Now, the International Space Station has got a projection screen. Did you know that? No, I didn't. They had it fitted last May for Star Wars Day. Wow. And they were watching the <laughs> Star Wars films on the big screen uh, that they've got. I've actually got a picture of the, the screen that they've got. And they got to watch The Force Awakens. Well, yeah. you know what? That, that doesn't surprise me because I can't remember the name, but there was a guy who was terminal. Yes. With, I think it was Cancer, huge Star Wars fan, and there was a massive plea. And in fact, Mark Hamill got behind it and a couple of the others mm-hmm. that said, you know, let this guy see the movie before he dies. And they did. And it, he died like three days later. Yeah, he got his wish. Yeah, so and that was long, you know, I, I could just imagine the non-disclosure agreements and the security behind that one. So the fact that they would do that for a fan doesn't mm-hmm. surprise me that they do that for, this, for the guys up at the space station. But it's still very cool regardless. I mean, to get it on Christmas Day, it's like, wow. <laughs> Did they know about it beforehand or was it just a surprise? They, they had some knowledge that it was they were going to see it, but they didn't know when. That's a, that's a great Christmas present. <laughs> so, um, yeah, as I say, I've got a, a picture of the screen, and I'll put that in the show notes. Um, it's actually from when it was fitted, and um, I've been looking for a, a, a time to actually shoehorn it into the, <laughs> into the news, go. and uh, this was the ideal opportunity. No, That the- works. Now, the question <laughs> is, did on a previous supply mission, did they at least have some popcorn set up? I think... Uh, somebody said they've got a popcorn machine. <laughs> I'm I sure hope so. That would have been perfect. That would have been perfect. I said, yeah, take take the hopper off the top of it and just sit, wait for it to pop <laughs> and see it floating around. Oh, jeez. I can see them doing the, uh, the Pac-Man thing <laughs> to try to get the popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. My first Star Wars experience was when I was eight years old and my dad took me to see The Empire Strikes Back. And as a young boy, watching that movie in the big screen was just an incredible experience. My favourite moment in any Star Wars movie is from The Empire Strikes Back, where Luke Skywalker crashes his X-Wing fighter on the planet and meets Yoda for the first time, and Yoda raises it out of the swamp, and Luke realises the full power of the Force. And he says to Yoda, I don't believe it, and Yoda says back, that's why you failed. I think it's a great message in not giving up. 
As a test pilot, I would love to have a go in an X-Wing fighter. It looks like a fantastic spacecraft, quite aerodynamically shaped, so of course it would be great for planet's atmospheres. But in space, you don't really need those aerodynamics. What you would need are a lot of thrusters, and it would take an awful lot of fuel to change direction as quick as they do in the movies. I think our knowledge of the universe is still very immature. We don't know much about gravity, one of the fundamental forces of nature. And so there's no reason why what we see in Star Wars couldn't become a reality. Although I do think that traveling faster than the speed of light is gonna be a hard nut to crack. If I could travel through hyperspace to anywhere in the universe, I'd probably choose to visit the event horizon of a supermassive black hole. I'd love to go there and see what really happens. Star Wars, made great in Britain. I love that slogan. <laughs> Star Wars made great in Britain. <laughs> okay, I don't want to hear any more complaining then if NASA and the guys start chanting USA, USA. <laughs> We, 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 <laughs> That's the way you're going to be about it. We, we, don't, <laughs> we don't do it very often. So we make the most of it when we do. Because <laughs> uh, I, I don't know, I saw a clip the other day, um, it was probably on Saturday Night Live or something like that, where you got a couple of uh, Americans and a couple of British people, and there's like, uh, let's introduce the Americans, and it's all USA, USA. And let's uh, introduce the English people. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it was a good piece by uh, Tim Pink there. <laughs> the space station has been uh, cultivating again, hasn't it? <laughs> it has. It has. Not with the greatest success, but you know, it, it's they obviously made that head of lettuce yeah. late, you know, late last year, which that's obviously going to... Just ask Matt Damon. You need to be able to do that to survive on Mars. So, <laughs> he knows he's been there. He's been there. That's right. <laughs> I'm still ashamed I haven't seen that movie yet. I've, I've heard it's so good. Yeah, it is. It is really good. I mean, it's got like 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. And from what I understand, the only thing that is unscientifically proof you know the, the only thing that doesn't really have any reality is the windstorm because mm -hmm. apparently Mars, Mars doesn't have enough of an atmosphere to create a storm like that but he had to do something for the suspense factor yeah but supposedly everything else in that movie pretty much is reality mm -hmm. of, of what could happen which is really cool and of course I gotta see the 3D version oh because that's me but uh, <laughs> anyway so yeah but uh, they actually they did the head of lettuce and now they've actually had some orange zinnias bloom on the space station. So this is part of the vegetable production system, which is called Veggie. It's not an acronym. No. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and this has all been part of that whole thing with lettuce. And it, it's to see how well they can produce this sort of thing on large voyages like to Mars and so forth. They have been having some problems. Apparently there were things like mold because of too much moisture, drought because of not enough moisture, uh, flooding in the roots, which which obviously is going to kill them. So apparently there have been a whole bunch of like urgent 4 a.m. phone calls uh, and, and so forth to try to get these things to go properly. And it's taken a, a bit, but the uh, Commander Kelly, who's uh, or Scott Kelly, is he Commander? He is Commander. He is Commander, that's what I yeah. thought. He, uh, he's been taking it upon himself ever since Christmas to try to get some of these flowers to, to bloom. And there were four of them that he was trying to do, and two of them, have successfully done it. So and he's, he's just done stuff like uh, using fans 
to blow some of the humidity out, but then, you know, trying to tweak that because then it gets too dry and so forth. But uh, regardless, just from his perseverance of it, they ended up with two of the four zinnias fully blooming as of this past weekend, I believe. Yeah, I mean, apparently things were more automated before, but um, since Christmas, he's been named an autonomous gardener. Ooh. Or the commander of veggie. <laughs> Autonomous gardener, otherwise known as AG in NASA. Tur- no, sorry. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> he's our AG on the ISS. <laughs> so, so he's been given the responsible of the watering can, basically. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there is one correction that needs to be made. NASA did say something about this being the first flower in, in space or something to that effect. No, not quite, because actually... The uh, Soviet cosmonauts did this back in 1982 mm-hmm. on Salyut 7. So yeah. they also were able to, to produce flowers in space back then. So, and I mean, Don Pettit also grew kind of a sunflower. Yes, he did, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. It wasn't full of what a sunflower should be, but nonetheless, he did it. Mm-hmm. But apparently, some things were going out saying that this was the first flower uh, in space or something to that effect. Not really. Have you seen ET? Oh, God. oh, you know, I, I, will, I am in the minority. I understand that. I hate that movie. Can't stand it. <laughs> they were they were all botanists, though, weren't they? They were uh, oh, yeah. like a tribe of, of botanists. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I hate that movie. I saw it once in the theater. Never cared to see it again. Now, it says here, uh, this is quite far. I, I can't remember where I actually got this article from. It, uh, where it's talking about the lettuce. It says, last last year, the space station grew Romaine lettuce. And in brackets, it says, and snacked on it while their cosmonaut colleagues were on a spacewalk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that they, they cut half of it and they saved it for themselves, I think. That's and then half of it went back. And I'm thinking that the cosmonauts came back and said, oh, I really fancy some, where's that gone? <laughs> <laughs> I would assume they saved a significant amount for them. <laughs> It says the, the, the zinnia plant is very different from a lettuce. Really, never have guessed that. Said uh, <laughs> Tr- Trent Smith, the veggie project manager, in a statement. It's more sensitive to the environmental perimeters and light characteristics. Uh, it, is, it takes longer to, to grow with a duration of between 60 and 80 days. So it's more difficult to grow. Uh, it makes a very good precursor to a tomato plant. It's very similar in how that grows. And obviously, tomatoes could tide astronauts over long journeys. Sure. I can see what they were doing there. They, you know, just, uh, get a plant that's very similar to a tomato plant, see if they can grow the flowers. If they can grow the flowers, then they should be able to grow the tomatoes. So, yeah. who knows? Those have got a ton of seeds inside of those, so they can just keep that going. Might even have a full salad by the uh, next decade. <laughs> Just give me a salt shaker and let me go out to my garden. That's all I need for those. My dad's exactly the same. <laughs> well, it'd just be nice, you know, for those moments when, you know, uh, supplies blow up shortly after the launch pad. Just to give them something. As, as we've mentioned before, uh, you know, on a long journey, I'll probably stop and go nuts as well, being able mm-hmm. to actually do something. Yeah, you know, and it's natural oxygen instead of reprocessed, mm-hmm. you know, with whatever they use to... to recycle the air so there's so many benefits to be able to grow things i'm, I'm really looking forward to what they come up with next yeah because they obviously they've proven it works might take some trial and error and some very delicate balancing but they did it twice once they've got the formula right then in theory it should work but 
the gardening once again uh, can be a bit of uh, alchemy there sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's, it's actually quite interesting uh, you know some people have just looked at it and gone yeah just a flower yeah, <laughs> they clearly don't get it <laughs> like, no this is a big step here folks a new website lets the public take part in an online astro selection test, which the European Space Agency will use to refine the way it chooses its astronaut candidates. ESA is not currently running a selection campaign, but the developing test for astronaut selection takes time and needs to be done right. The trainers at the European Space Agency Astronaut Centre in Cologne, Germany, have developed a test that runs users through increasingly complicated space awareness puzzles. I'd be interested to try it. Yeah, I think I will as well. I, I haven't had a go yet because I only found out about this today. <laughs> <laughs> but as soon as I saw it, I went, ooh, that's interesting. I will put uh, a link to the tests in the show notes so you can have a go at that if you want to. <laughs> this is so American. You, you hear this and it just kind of screams, you know, big muscular, you know, soldier going, Rah! Well, NASA has formed its ongoing program for detecting and tracking near-Earth objects like asteroids and so forth that come close to us as the Planetary Planetary Defense Coordination Office. Why am I thinking Buzz Lightyear? (laughs) (laughs) And it does what you would think it's supposed to do. It's all about tracking and uh, keeping watch on near-Earth objects that could possibly uh, collide with Earth. That could cause a couple of different things. You know, they, they say that there are no known impact threats, and that's all fine and good. Uh, however, that 2013 meteor over Russia. Wow, yeah. Yeah, they, they never saw that one coming. So that's kind of an indicator that, you know, we're not necessarily all that safe out here. So that's the kind of stuff that they're hoping to track. In, in addition to tracking, they also want to work with ESA and other organizations. Right now, the big thing is that they can only really see objects that are, that are about a thousand feet across or bigger. Okay. And the one thing that they mention here is that they say that they have cataloged more than 90% of near-Earth objects larger than 3,000 feet. Um, how do you know that it's 90%? Because <laughs> if you've catalog if you can say you've cataloged 90% of the objects, then that would mean you know how many total objects there are out there, which kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> how can you say you've already found 90% of what's out there if you don't know what's out there? <laughs> <laughs> that makes absolutely no sense to me. I take that back. It wasn't 1,000 feet. It's 3,000 feet. So they okay. say that they've got 90% of the near-Earth objects that are larger than 3,000 feet. Again, that's... How do they do that? But what they want this new office and project to do is to take a look at those that are about 450 feet. So about the size of, a, of an American football field. Uh, so 450 feet or larger. Mm-hmm. So that's that's part of the initiative on this one, as well as coming up with what they call planetary defense goals. Uh, basically, that if something is heading our way, come up with plans and strategies to deflect it in one way or another so that it doesn't hit us. Yeah, just send in Bruce Willis. There you go. That's, that's pretty much what I think everybody's going to say. So... <laughs> That is going to be a joint NASA and European Space Agency uh, mission called the Asteroid Impact and Deflection Assessment Mission. Of course, that has an acronym of ADA. has to have an acronym. Of course. (laughs) So that would demonstrate impact deflection 
various methods of, of doing it that way, which to me sounds like they want to put up some kind of big structure up in space to say, okay, you know, knock this thing out of its way. That's what it tells me. Um, and if intervention is not possible, this office would, go, would, would contact FEMA, which is our emergency management group over here, yep. uh, to basically worry, talk to them about timing, location, and so forth in case there's going to be a super bad accident here. There you go, folks. NASA and the U.S. government and, and, and you know, ESA and so forth, they've, they've formed the Planetary Defense Coordination Office. Well, at least they're on the lookout. I mean, that's a plus. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've seen what kind of things can happen, even from tiny objects. So, and the prospect of a big one coming our way, yeah, that could be bad. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much kind of wiped out the dinosaurs. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've got a big example of that in Arizona. Oh yeah, there is a big hole. <laughs> Just, uh, and I'm sure that any Russians in the you know Tungusta blast. Or you know any anyone in that vicinity could uh, would be able to tell you if they were still alive. Oh yeah, I mean they never was... did figure out what that was. Did no, they did. I think they pretty much did figure out that that was just a comet that blew up. Mm-hmm. A comet, an asteroid that that blew up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's late in the podcast. My words are failing me. I need more caffeine. <laughs> just, just some kind of falling debris. There you go. That works. <laughs> a thing from space. <laughs> The United States Air Force, uh, let me get this, the United States Air Force's Program Executive Officer for Space and Space Missile Systems Center. Blimey. Um, Say that again? United States Air Force's Program Executive Officer for Space and Space Missile Systems Center. Space and Space Missile Systems Oh, my God. Systems Center. Wow. And I was expecting some really high-powered name, but it's just Lieutenant General Samuel Greaves <laughs> has approved the newly upgraded SpaceX Full Thrust Falcon 9. I've not heard of the Full Thrust Falcon 9, and I can hardly no. say it. We know the Falcon 9, but... For use on National Security Space Missions, or NSS. <laughs> So is that his way of saying that the Falcon 9 has been approved for top secret missions? Yep. Okay, okay. <laughs> See, I've, I've worked for the military, so I kind of started to understand the way they think when they start to name things. Yeah, national security space missions normally means top secret. <laughs> okay, like the Air Force project and all that. Yeah. Okay, got yeah. it. SpaceX's Falcon 9 um, has been repeatedly upgraded since it first took to the skies in 2010. On the 25th of January, the announcement by the US Air Force addresses the latest change from the baseline configuration of the rocket to its latest one, because that's Falcon 9 that launched the the Jason uh, mission mm-hmm. is the last time that configuration is going to be used. There is a new Falcon 9 going to be used from now on. Mm. So maybe that might make a difference. Yeah. The certification process provides a path for launch service providers to demonstrate the capability to design, produce, qualify and deliver new launch systems and provide the mission assurance support required to deliver NSS satellites into orbit. So spy satellites. Mm-hmm. This gives the Air Force confidence that the national security satellites will safely achieve the intended orbits with a full mission capability. This must be really big if they're trusting SpaceX with it, because before it was the the old school service providers that mm-hmm. uh, only got used. So they're taking SpaceX seriously now. Yeah, that's true. 
if, if the military are on board. But even at that, if they're a cheaper but still just as appropriate alternative, why not? I'm sure that SpaceX needs to know what the payload is to properly get it up there, mm-hmm. but they really don't need to know what the payload is, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I can see them doing this. It says, after some legal wrangling, <laughs> right? Yeah. SpaceX in May of 2015 received the approval to move forward and have the Falcon 9 effectively compete under contracts through the lucrative Evolved Expendable Launch Vehicle Program. No, I can't even make a word don't out do, of that. Don't even. <laughs> <laughs> don't. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Why? Do, I, I kid you not. When I worked with the DOD, there was a project which was a successor to another project. The name of that second project was an acronym, but the first letter was an acronym of the first project's acronym. I kid you not. Yeah, that makes things. I kid you not. So it's like, say the first program had an acronym of ABC. The second program, the first letter was A to represent the ABC from the first program. I'm not joking. I knew they used acronyms and abbreviations and things. I didn't know to what extent until I started doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could have told you. <laughs> but this is, this is really, really good, though. Another feather in the cap for, for SpaceX. And it just seems to be mm-hmm. getting better and better all the time. We've talked about the giant Magellan telescope. Yeah. The, the big one that's going to be going down in Chile. Well, have you ever seen one of its mirrors being made? No. It's actually really cool. The article regarding it is really long, so I can't really go into too many details about it. But thankfully, they have a video embedded in the article that shows the whole thing going on, uh, you know, the whole procedure. But it's actually really cool be- because of the size of these things, the one this it's it's huge. It's a huge mirror. So they say that one of the things that that is an issue is that they don't want it to be so heavy that it bends under its own weight. Because you figure it's got to get shipped from Arizona to Chile, mm. and that's a lot of time for uh, some kind of defects to happen. And the problem is that even if it bends by 100 nanometers, that's enough to distort the image so that it's no longer clear. So they show the whole process, and it's actually really cool. They have these gigantic molds that they use to form it, and they pour the glass over a series of basically what look like honeycombs. Right, okay. So they pour the glass, and then they actually, it's a kind of a centrifuge as well. So once the glass is poured and it's sealed, the centrifuge spins at about five times a minute, and that's just enough to get the the molten glass to spread out so that it can get its parabolic shape you know, at the, at the right size that they need it to do. But what it does is those little honeycombs help to keep the glass as one unit, but by reducing the weight by like uh, 80%. All right, yeah, okay. And it's really neat to watch this thing because otherwise what they would have to do if they didn't use this method, they would basically have to shave 14 tons of glass. Wow. To get it to the, the shape that they want it to be. So... They get this thing going, and the part that's really amazing, the reflective surface, it has to be about 25 nanometers, which in our, let's say you scaled that thing up to the size of North America, 25 nanometers would be the equivalent of the tallest mountain being one inch and the deepest canyon being one inch. Okay. Think about that, because that is roughly 10, sorry, Three ten thousandths of the width of a human hair. 
<laughs> that's what they polish that reflective surface down to. And because it says that the the method that they use to do it shaves off the layers as needed, atom by atom. And the video that they include to, to that you can watch where they do all of this is just fascinating to watch. The precision that is needed to make one of these, and they need to make several of them for this. So then they also said that during the transport, it's going to be either by land or by sea. They don't ship it up in the air. They said that the key to a safe transport is that, well, they have to distribute the weight over hundreds of support points, which makes sense. But they actually have several layers of suspension between the mirror and the road or the ship deck. So they're going to have seven of these things made. Right. And uh, they expect the the uh, the telescope to be ready by 2024. But to watch this thing in action, the way they do it, the way they pour it and shape it and, and polish it is just amazing to watch. And it just it just really makes you have a lot of respect for it. It's not just a mirror that you can buy in a store. That's <laughs> for sure. By no means. It's, it's almost like listening to someone telling you how they make a samurai sword. You yeah. know, how it's that piece of metal is folded over and folded over and folded over. And then it's just so thin. Yeah. Um, but... I love those shows. I l- absolutely... We've got one over here called How It's Made. Yeah, I know the show. Yeah, I assume they'd have it over there. Yeah. And every now and then they'll have like a six-hour run of it. And I'll just sit and watch everyone. It's on, it doesn't uh, care if I'm interested in whatever act it actually is. Just seeing the way they make it is so cool. I think it's on something like It's probably on Discovery or one yeah, of those kind Discovery of channels. Discovery or Science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely have those those shows here. We used to have one uh, aimed at kids uh, when when I was growing up, and it was uh, it was called Stop, Look, and Listen. I've and, heard of it, and uh, it was basically the same kind. Of, it used to be um, basic things for kids, you know, because you know how some kids don't even realise that milk comes from a cow, you know, that right. kind of stuff. <laughs> so it was how it got from a cow to. Well, in the UK back in those days, milk used to be in glass bottles, mm-hmm. and you used to have a milkman deliver them. Uh, yep. Now, I, I don't think I've ever seen a milkman for years. <laughs> uh, you know, you just go to the supermarket now and just get it from there. Well, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that uh, there's something going on with NASA and funding, that things aren't looking too rosy. Well, this involves their new space launch system. Apparently, things are not going too well there. Not so much that there's a technical problem or anything, but uh, obviously Congress wants something for the money that they're dumping into them, and they haven't really done anything with the space launch system yet. They don't even have uh, really any kind of... uh, agenda yet set up for launches and so forth. So, apparently there was an all-hands meeting at the Vehicle Assembly Building at Kennedy Space Center uh, to talk about all of this and looks like there are some budgetary issues right now that could put the, put it in jeopardy. Uh, I mean, the, the, the article that I saw about this was actually really long and really detailed and, of course, had a lot of acronyms. Of course. Which kind of made it a little bit difficult to follow. But basically, they don't have enough booked missions, and obviously funding is going to be an issue because of that. So the first rocket is supposed to have the SLS-1 engine to it. Then they were going to have a second one using the same engine. 
Well, now it looks like they want to have the second mission have the SLS-2 engine. Well, they don't even have anything ready for the SLS-1 engine. And now they want the second one to have the SLS-2 engine. So that's been causing issues. That's going to be changing uh, what they can do and as well as validation flights, you know, making sure that the engines are all okay. That was also have an impact on how many crewed missions they can have, because obviously they're not going to put humans on the first flight of these engines. No. No, they want to have one un- unmanned flight at least to get it up there and make sure everything is up and running. Well, now that's going to be in jeopardy because you can't have a crewed flight on the second SL- on the second SLS-1 mission because there's not going to be an SLS-1 mission, apparently. So that's going to have an impact on that one. So they can't have a crew for that. Then they're also talking about the asteroid redirect mission, which is part of that planetary, planetary defense, defense coordination office. Well, they want that to be involved with the fourth flight mission, which again, this whole thing they're, they're stepping up to get the newer engine in sooner without really having enough time to well, so they certainly can't really make it manned without having another flight, so it's kind of like they're going to have one launch of, with the SLS-1 then all of a sudden they have to rejigger everything for SLS-2 and it's just, it's just really weird on what's going on with that, so now That means that if there's a problem, of course, with any SLS-2 mission, that's going to cause a a big problem because that's going to backlog everything. And it all gets impacted even more that we're going to have a new administration coming in next year. Maybe the next administration isn't going to be so favorable toward this SLS mission as the current one. Like I said, the whole article is, is long and I very badly gave you a summary of it but it, it's pretty much saying that the sls mission is kind of in jeopardy here yeah see there's nothing wrong with orion orion can fly on on many different um launches mm-hmm. i mean that's great i like that idea if one launcher has a problem you can use something else right. I, li- I like that idea but since day one there's been this stigma with the sls and um nobody's really liked it i mean i've spoken to engineers and things and they don't like it so yeah it's it's been cursed since day one it seems to be but then we're dealing with as as we all know the the sls we we know it doesn't actually stand for this but we all call it the senate launch system um (laughs) yeah i see where you're going with that it's just it, it seems to be there now simply because they don't want to say, hey, we, we have to scrub it. It's it's like it's they're committed to it it's just an, to say they're committed to it. Yeah, it's embarrassing, really. But then I, I wasn't that keen on the Aries either. It was, it was a, a weird rocket. It really was a weird rocket. But it, the, test, the test run worked fine uh, when they tried it. So uh, I don't know. You know, it, it's almost... It, it's starting to feel like, you know what, NASA... You do the really great stuff you're good at, the the New Horizons, the Martian rovers, the Cassini probes. You do that. Let SpaceX and the other guys handle launching from now on. Yeah. Let let these guys use your facilities for testing and, and whatnot. You can you can charge them sort of rates for for that mm-hmm. process. You've got some expertise in, in that kind of thing. Lend them your expertise. Mm-hmm. And things will get done a lot quicker. You know, and even I'll get rid of, of the, the U.S. jingoism and have NASA equipment launched on ESA rockets for all I care. You know, I they've, mean, proven that, they've proven that they're really, really good at, at the hardware that goes up and does its, its research and all of that. There's no reason for them to keep blowing so much money 
on this SLS system when other guys can do that? I mean, you look at the, the Ariane rocket. Um, they've hardly ever had problems with that. Mm-hmm. It's just a workhorse. Uh, and now, well, it's been for a few years now, that they've actually got a Soyuz launcher at the Ariane site. They actually launch European Space Agency Soyuz rockets. Right. So, you know, it's, yeah, 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 yeah. The whole the U.S. was the first to the moon and we launched the space shuttle, blah, 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 blah. Whatever. But you that, know, that was a different time. That was a different time. No one's ego, at least, well, at least as far as I'm concerned, from from my side of things, my ego won't get hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, you've proven what you can do with the, with the New Horizon and the Cassini and so forth. Keep doing that by all means. Let the other guys get the hardware up there. I don't care who does it as long as it gets done. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just interested in the end result. Uh, it's like like we've said, you know, when when uh, you know Neil and, and Buzz went to the moon, it wasn't as far as we were concerned. America went to the moon. Yes, it was America that got there first, but we got to the moon as the human race. Here's something that everybody can enjoy from now until February twentieth. You will be able to see five count them five planets in the sky at the same time pretty much straight in a row and you won't even need a telescope for it it's unbelievable so, yep so for now until february 20th now unfortunately this is like right before sunrise it's kind of cold up here in the northern hemisphere for that but you know nonetheless you get to see mercury venus saturn mars and jupiter all in a straight line at the same time supposedly even uranus is in there as well but you can't see that with the naked eye so do we know which sort of direction you need to be you have to face south south facing Mm -hmm. afterwards it will be available again later this year but the problem is at that point it's going to be at sunset and mercury is going to be so low to the ground you probably won't be able to see it yeah so now is the time to see it now now's the time to just brave the cold go out there and be able to say Five planets in a row. There they are. So, you know that big uh, star out there that nobody could really explain why it was dimming? And one guy from Penn State University, which is my alma mater, which is kind of embarrassing, said that it could be an alien megastructure. It's like, what? Really? It could... <laughs> Dyson Sphere. And everyone kind of poo-pooed that. And they said, no, 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 there's got to be some other reason for it. We'll figure out what it is. Well, it turns out that they went back to look at it, and they still have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, they said it was probably like a like a, a series of comets that broke up or something like that, and it was just dimming the light from that. They ruled out a planet because it was irregular. The, you know, the way that it was dimming wasn't it wasn't a planet. But they're just like, what is causing this? We don't. And and they pretty much came back and said, yeah, we really have no clue what's doing this. So this is for KIC eight four six two eight five two also known as Tabby's Star. <laughs> and, you know, when trying to... You know, they've, they've been watching it for a while now. They've known about this star for over a century. But they just couldn't figure out what's been going on with the dimming, which they've only really noticed since the 1980s. So, at first they were saying it's a, a large cloud of comets. And then, of course, like I said, uh, the guy from Penn State said, oh, it could be an alien megastructure. <laughs> what? Help? Got, really? Uh, but now... Uh, Bradley Schaefer of the Louisiana State University looked at data from various photographic plates that have been made from the past century involving that, and even 
to the point that he's apparently one of the few people in this field who can actually go and look at the actual photographic plates instead of just images of them. So he went back and he took a look at everything. Apparently this star has faded about 20% since, uh, from 1890 to 1989. And that's the big mystery. They don't know why. They've never seen this. So to confirm the fade, he actually went to Harvard and looked at the original photographic plates and inspected them you know, by eye. So apparently he's, he's one of the very few astronomers who know how to do this. And he said that for it to actually have been comets to do this, they would have required 648,000 comets, each one 200 kilometers wide. Wow. Not going to happen. <laughs> he doesn't say impossible, but he says wildly improbable. We're back to the whole thing. He, he does rule out alien megastructures because he says that he doubts that there's any alien technology that could build a structure massive enough to cause a 20% reduction in brightness in 100 years. Plus, any light energy captured by that structure would probably be given off as heat, and there's no indication of that either. So what it comes down to is that either one of the statements that have already been made has a big loophole that they haven't caught, or they just simply have... They have no idea what's causing it. But it's probably not alien megastructures. <laughs> the American Astronomical Society has given New Horizons Principal Investigator Alan Stern the 2016 Carl Sagan Memorial Award, which recognizes people who have made outstanding contributions to the field of space exploration. And uh, needless to say, New Horizons has kind of been top on the list of the greatest things in science for 2015. Yep. So it's no real surprise that... Uh, He's on this one. And like like we've talked about, I don't know if it was actually on the podcast or before, this guy is really, he's good with people, and he's good at answering questions, and, and you know, so he's, he's very personable. And so between that, you know, he's he pretty much the New Horizons and him and his team, that's why they were recognized for this, and duly so. He says, I'm honored to receive this, and I'm accepting it on behalf of the entire New Horizons team around the U.S. So... Yeah, I mean that that's that's good for him and definitely I when well, we talked about this in the last show that's probably the one big thing space related that just really stands out for for all of 2015. It certainly does, yeah. And he's also been awarded within the last few days actually the Yuri's Night Spirit of Yuri's Night award for it's for 2015 but it's it works the same as the Academy Awards it's, it's yeah, like much. for the year before. And uh, he actually put up his uh, acceptance speech on um, on YouTube. So I've got the, the audio from that. Hi, I'm Alan Stern and I'm based at the Southwest Research Institute's offices in Boulder, Colorado. But today I'm speaking to you from New Horizons Mission Operations Control Center at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab in Laurel, Maryland. I'm the leader of NASA's Pluto New Horizons mission. I'm also an active suborbital researcher and I'm a founder of space companies including Wingu, Worldview, and Golden Spike. Thank you to Yuri's Night for awarding me the Spirit of Yuri's Night Award 2015. It's really a heartfelt and unexpected honor. I've been attending Yuri's Night parties since 07. I've also recorded videos for Yuri's Night several times, and I did a Google Hangout with Yuri's Night leaders last year in support of New Horizons. In fact, back in 2011, I did a Yuri's Night video for the 50th anniversary of human spaceflight. Yuri's Night celebrates the birth of human spaceflight and the first time any human left Earth's cradle for space. But it represents even more than that to me. 
It also represents the worldwide excitement about human spaceflight and the belief that spaceflight of all kinds will be a fundamental part of the future of human society. Now I'll say a word or two about New Horizons and our plans for this year, 2016. Although the close flyby of Pluto was completed in July, data will continue to be sent to Earth until late this fall when we finish the downlink. For us on the team, for you, and for really for everyone, it's still raining data every week from the Kuiper Belt. The flyby of Pluto saw the largest single public response to a NASA mission in decades. That viral response to exploration, turning a point of light into a planet in just a matter of weeks, was a strong signal that people love pioneering space exploration of all kinds. If we can capitalize on that, there's no limit to what we can accomplish. Celebrating Yuri's Night brings us together as a community, and it gives us an opportunity to engage the public in just that kind of excitement about space exploration. So let's work to make sure that 50 years from today, Yuri's Night is celebrated by people living and working in locales across the solar system. Ayacheli. Across the solar system, I like that. He, so he's, he's hoping people will be on Mars by then, I guess. Yeah, it's quite promising the way he talks about it, though. I think it really does bring it home. Well, and he's right. I mean, NASA, I'll give them credit. For as much as we might bash them on certain things, they've done a fantastic job with, with social media and so forth when it comes to New Horizons. I mean, come on, releasing the first major photo of Pluto on Instagram? Yeah. That surprised a <laughs> lot of people. But that, but that was brilliant. And for as much as all the other stuff that they've done, this really was the first thing in God knows how many years that the general public was really excited over this. Yeah, very. Because it's one of the furthest places we've been out to that we hadn't explored yet. Uh, we've seen these really hazy, pixelated Mm-hmm. pictures and we just wanted to see what it was like and the results were just nothing like we expected at all oh no which is just fantastic we got to get him on the show yeah I, I really would like to get alan stern on the show that would be so cool so yeah we're, we're gonna have to look into that one definitely Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, once again, it's a uh, action packed show that we had today. There was so much in it. There was a lot in it today. <laughs> and uh, as always, John, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks to everyone out there for listening and uh, keep watching out for posts and things that we put out there constantly changing as it is in the well both the space industry the space community and we are going to have another show this month so we can talk about star wars right yeah yeah okay good because it's bubbling up <laughs> it certainly is so uh, as i say thanks again for listening in and uh, we'll speak with you all very soon 
Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. You can find a link on our podcast pages. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages, and don't forget to spread the word about us. This is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. Okay.